In a rapidly changing world, people wonder more and more about where their food comes from and how it was grown. The farmers who grow America's corn understand how important this is and want to share the stories from our farms of how we are working to grow an incredible crop that can be an answer to sustainability questions and is grown by men and women who value the air, water, soil, and our natural resources just like you. To find out more about how corn farmers are working to feed and fuel a vibrant economy and healthy planet, visit ncga.com. NCGA, a commitment to the future. Kia ora everyone, it's TJ, welcome back to New Zealand Mysteries, the podcast. Uh, as you know, or might not know, we have a YouTube channel and we also have a Facebook page, so we'd love to see you on either of those. Uh, what I do is I like to bring awareness to cold cases in New Zealand mainly, and I want to seek answers for victims and their families and raise awareness so that they know that these cases are not forgotten. Now, I'm taking a break after releasing part two in my Scott Watson deep dive. If you haven't already, please listen to it. You may find out some information that you've never heard before. I hope to release the last part in a week or so. In this case, we're looking at the murder of 66-year-old Sydney Boyd in Christchurch in 2006. This is a sad case that has had barely any media at all, and it remains unsolved. Uh, actually, when I went looking for it, I could only find one article, just one. So this is definitely a story that we need to share as much as we can, and it really deserves more attention. So... Let's have a look. When I went looking uh, for information about Sydney, I came across the article, and it's an interactive from stuff.co.nz, released in 2020. It's called Broken Glass, Who Killed Sydney Boyd? And we're going to read from that article, seeing as it is the only one. So let's have a look. Sydney Boyd died after he was pushed through a window in a block of flats and fell to the ground below in 2006. Suspicion fell on three men, two of whom are now dead. His family fear it's too late to catch his killer. Sam Sherwood and Blair Ensor investigate. So let's give you a bit of uh, Christchurch background for those who don't know where Christchurch is. It is the largest city in the South Island of New Zealand and the seat of the Canterbury region. Christchurch urban area lies on the South Island's east coast, just north of Banks Peninsula. The urban area is home to 383-200 residents, which makes it the second most populous city in New Zealand after Auckland and before Wellington. The Avon River flows through the centre of the city with an urban park located along its banks. Um, Christchurch has a bit of a history in 2000 and 11, 185 people were killed in a powerful earthquake uh, on the 22nd of February at 12.51. The city later became the site of a terrorist attack, targeting two mosques on the 15th of March 2019, in which 51 people were killed, and which was described by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern as one of New Zealand's darkest days. So Christchurch definitely uh, has a history. But Sam Sherwood and Blair Ensor, who did this um, article, have done a great job about the story. So let's get into it. After dark, in the stairwell of a block of Christchurch flats, two men were arguing. 
One of them was Sydney Boyd, a 66-year-old cat lover who some tenants in the Housing New Zealand complex called the bank because of his willingness to lend money. So Housing New Zealand is actually a social housing outfit in New Zealand. It's changed its name recently, but um, back then it was Housing New Zealand. It wasn't unusual for shouting and yelling to echo around the building, which was home to drunks, drug addicts and those who'd fallen on hard times. Let me just say that uh, myself, having lived in social housing in the past, I know many people that have as well and who do live in social housing at the moment and they definitely don't fit into this category. So that's not everybody that lives in social housing. After a brief pause in the dispute, glass was heard shattering. Trent Revel, a tenant in the building at 281 Rickerton Road, rang 111 at about 8.30pm on May 23rd, 2006 and told the operator there'd been an incident. Revel said, you'd better hurry. Some guy just went flying out of a first story window. I think he's dead. He's right outside my fucking door. Revel lived at flat 38, which was on the ground floor of C Block, one of the three identical three-storey blocks at the social housing complex. In the background, the operator could hear the sound of a television. Revel said, you'd better send the cops as well. He'd been watching sensing murder, he said. The guy upstairs threw him out the window. Revel told the operator he'd heard two men arguing before the incident. One of them had told the other to fuck off repeatedly, shortly before a window shattered and the guy landed in front of me. Emergency services arrived a short time later to find Boyd lying on the ground at the entrance to C Block. Shards of reinforced glass from an 81cm by 77cm window in the building stairwell were scattered on the concrete around him. He had fallen about 2.1 metres and was bleeding heavily from a gash in his head, but was conscious and able to talk. He knew his first name, but couldn't immediately recall his last. Paramedic Wayne asked Boyd what had happened. He said he'd been in a fight and was pushed out the window, but was unable to name his attacker. Boyd was taken to Christchurch Hospital where his condition deteriorated and his family was told to expect the worse. In the weeks that followed, Sydney slowly emerged from an induced coma and communicated with his sister, who probed him for information about the incident. However, hope turned to despair 38 days after his fall when he died unexpectedly from a rare complication of a procedure that had been carried out to help him breathe. It should not have been a difficult crime to solve, but a lack of credible witnesses and forensic evidence and a failing by police mean his attacker has not been caught. Detectives focused their inquiries on three C-Block residents, Mr Revel, Mr Salinger and Mr Green. A coroner later ruled one or more of the men held the key to solving the case. Two of those have died in the past two years, Boyd's family fear it's too late to catch his killer, but remain hopeful they'll learn who was responsible. His sister says he got no justice for what he suffered and he had a miserable long death. His sister's name is Carol um, and 
she fears obviously that it's a cold case that no one cares that the police failed that these witnesses never spoke the truth she couldn't get a straight answer out of them very very sad Stuff has obtained never-before-released material about the cold case, including witness statements and scene photographs gathered as part of the police investigation. And, and police have confirmed a senior investigator was recently tasked with reviewing the file in the coming months. The review was initiated after Stuff contacted the officer in charge of the initial investigation and alerted him to Revel's death last year. I must just tell you, if you want to look at any of the photos of the crime scene and so forth, that they will be on the YouTube uh, video. I also have links to this in the description box below, along with everyone, everything else. Um, and there is a small uh, video uh, from his sister about his life, but we will cover a little bit of that here. Sydney Boyd. The eldest of four children was born in Ashburton, about 80k south of Christchurch. At school, where he became known as Super Sid, he was a bright student with a flair for art, his family says. He also loved to dance and had a passion for horse riding, particularly show jumping. At the age of 17, unfortunately his life took a turn for the worse when he suffered a brain bleed while cross-country running. He was rushed to Dunedin Hospital and underwent urgent surgery. He developed epilepsy in the months following that incident. Despite suffering seizures, Sydney secured employment at various Ashburton businesses, including a brickmaker and an electricity supplier. He also married, but the relationship failed. Sydney shifted to the Rickerton Road complex in about 2000 after an Ashburton Housing New Zealand flat he shared with another man was accidentally burned to the ground. An animal lover, he cooked two cats and filled his room with three large fish tanks. He was also a familiar face at the local thrift shops. That's my kind of man. I loved thrift shop shopping. It's one of my passions. However, life wasn't easy for Sydney at the flats. His sister Carol said, her timid brother often felt threatened and frightened by residents despite going out of his way to help some of them. It makes me really, really angry when vulnerable people or timid people get taken advantage of um, in situations like this. Just pisses me the hell off. But let's move on. Boyd was hounded by people wanting to borrow money, even though he often didn't have enough to travel to Ashburton to see his family, his sister says. She said he wasn't happy there at the complex, but that's what was offered to him, him and that's where he had to stay. And I know from experience or from people I know that if you are offered a housing New Zealand house or a social housing house, you pretty much have to take it because the waiting lists in New Zealand are in the hundreds of, just like thousands, over like 5,000 I think. Um, so you take what you can get and you don't turn it down. So you don't always get the property or area that you want. On the night of his fall, Boyd walked a short distance from his A block home to C block where he'd arranged to meet fellow resident Green, who lived in flat 43 for a cuppa. Green had borrowed money from Sydney and owed him about 30 bucks. 
As Boyd entered the building, it appears he unplugged an extension cord that ran from a shared laundry area into Revel's room on the ground floor. He then began making his way up the stairs to Green's flat, which was on the first floor. Now, residents gave different accounts of the events that followed. When police arrived, Revel, who lived in the complex for about three years, emerged from his flat and spoke to Constable Deborah Wilson. A sickness beneficiary, he had had issues with drugs and alcohol and was known to police. According to police records, Revel told Wilson that he was checking his washing on a clothesline outside when Boyd, whom he didn't know, walked past him and into C-Block. A short time later, he noticed the extension cord was slack and found it unplugged. Revel marched up the stairs looking for the culprit and found Sydney waiting around in the stairwell on the first floor. To his surprise, Sydney confirmed he'd unplugged the cord and then started verbally having a go at me. He said it was like he was drunk or simple. He was swearing at me a lot and told me to bugger off. Revel said he told Boyd to piss off before turning to head back to his room. It was then that the door to flat 44, which was on the first floor, opened. He told Wilson he did not see anyone emerge, but heard the distinctive Canadian accent of the man who lived at 44. Revel said the man, who he did not know by name, talked to Sydney about how he was over here causing trouble again, before saying three times, Do you want to have a go? He said he then heard a crash bang noise and I saw the old guy hit the ground outside. As soon as that happened, the door to flat 44 shut. Nothing was said after that. Revel said he checked Sydney after the fall and realising he was in a bad way rang triple one from his room. He remained there until emergency services arrived. The man who lived in flat 44 was Sillinger a former Papua Nui High School head boy who was born in Canada and moved to New Zealand when he was about 10 years old. According to police records, he told Constable Stephen Rockford that he was watching a British Army programme on television when he heard two males going at each other outside his flat. He recognised both those voices. One was Sydney's, the other, which was nasally and Australian-like, belonged to Revel, Selinger told the cop. The pair were arguing about a power cord. They were yelling at each other, but in these places you get used to that. The dispute lasted a minute. I yelled out, piss off you perverts, shortly after I heard glass shattering. Selinger said he opened his door and made his way down the stairs directly in front of his flat. He said I saw the window in the stairwell smashed and could hear snoring, tight breathing and knew something was wrong. He looked out the broken window and saw a man lying face down on the ground below. He said, I went down and found Sid breathing heavily and trying to speak. I couldn't understand what he was trying to say. After attempting to put Boyd in the recovery position so he didn't suffocate on the blood pooling around his head, Salinger said he went to get help. He rang Revel's doorbell but there was no response so he went to the room of a nearby resident and asked him to ring triple one. When Salinger went back inside, or back outside, he saw a car drive away from the car park, but didn't see what type. Emergency services arrived a short time later. Police spoke briefly to Green, the man Boyd had arranged to visit, who said he'd been home all night. 
He'd heard a noise about the time of Boyd's fall, but didn't know what it was. Three days later, Green told Detective Doran Ho that on the night of the incident, he had nodded off to sleep in his flat and was woken up by the sound of people shouting in the stairwell. He said, I heard a door slam. Then I heard someone say, you, really loudly. Then the arguing started. At first, he didn't recognise any of the voices involved in the dispute. At one point, he thought he heard a third person, a man, tell them to fuck off. They were swearing at each other. Then I realised that one of the voices was Sid's because I heard him say, I'm only up here for a cuppa, for a cup of tea. Green recalled someone saying, stick your dukes up, shortly before things went quiet. He said, then I heard a thud. I didn't hear the sound of glass breaking, I just heard a thud. He remained in his room until he heard what sounded like police radios downstairs about 10 minutes later. Just a quick reminder before we carry on, if you have any information about any of the cases I cover on the channel, please call Crime Stoppers anonymously 0800 555 You can also call the police on 105 or go to your local police station nzmissing at gmail.com if you have any case suggestions for me as i say we're on facebook we have a really wonderful community on facebook we share the videos and stories of the cold cases around as many people as we can it's really really great if you'd like to support the show with a three dollar coffee it, i would be very very appreciative and grateful you can go to nz mysteries no, you can't. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash nzmysteries and uh, it really helps. I have to pay for subscriptions to, to keep the podcast going, subscriptions to keep um, being able to find articles, heaps of different things. So it's really appreciative and all this information is going to be in the show notes. Thank you so much to everyone supporting my show. I really appreciate it. Let's keep going. A sister's detective work. Despite being able to talk at the scene, Sidney Boyd had suffered serious injuries, including a broken neck and a brain bleed. In the days after he was admitted to the hospital's intensive care unit, his condition deteriorated and he was placed in an induced coma. Doctors and family feared he might not survive the week. However, Boyd's condition slowly improved to the point he was conscious and able to communicate with people with his hands. He was unable to talk because he was breathing through a tube that had been inserted into his windpipe. On June 20th, nearly a month after the incident, Carol, his sister, visited her brother with a photo of C-Block. Keen to find out who had pushed him through the window, she pointed to a flat on the ground floor and asked, Was it 38? Residents at the social housing complex had told the family that Revel, the man who lived there, was aggressive and the incident might have had something to do with a power cord running from the laundry to his unit. But Boyd shook his head. Three days later, she returned with her mother and her brother's ex-wife. Boyd was wide awake and smiled at them as they entered the hospital room. She said to her brother, Who did it? His hand shook as he wrote the number 43 on a pad she'd brought with her. Carol then showed her brother an enlarged photo she'd taken of the flats, which she'd numbered on the outside. He pointed to the number 43 and the flat where Green lived on the first floor. 
How many people pushed you? Carol asked him. He held up two fingers. She asked him again whether it was the person who lived in flat 38. He shook his head and pointed upwards. Carol contacted Constable Deborah Wilson on June 26 and told her about the information she had extracted from her brother and suggested police pay him a visit. I'm thinking why the, haven't the police paid him a visit anyway before this and why did she have to ring the police and suggest it? I don't know, well, let's move on. That hadn't happened when Boyd died unexpectedly on July 1st as a result of a rare complication from a tracheotomy which caused major blood loss. So this man died before the police even bothered coming to try and talk to him and gather information from him. Even when his sisters had, or his sister had, his family members had, and they had even rung police and said, you need to come and talk to this guy, you know, what are you doing? Very, very sad. There was no fault on the part of those involved in his treatment, a pathologist said. Despite the setback, police continued to search for answers for the family, re-interviewing Revel, Green and Salinger. All three men either changed their stories or volunteered new information. So who's telling the truth? Revel's later statements were inconsistent with what he'd told police on the night of the incident. Two things in particular stood out. First, he told Detective Sergeant Jeff Ruddock, the officer in charge of the investigation, that he'd seen the man from Flat 44 emerge from his room immediately prior to Boyd's fall. Previously, he'd said he'd only heard his voice. He told Ruddock he did not see the man push Boyd out the window, but there were only two of them on the landing. Second, Revel told police that rather than tending to his washing prior to arguing with Boyd, as he'd said in his first statement, he was watching television when his fridge and heater lost power. He went outside to investigate what had happened, saw Boyd walking up the stairs and confronted him about the unplugged extension cord. Sillinger, when he was re-interviewed in February 2007, said that a few days after Boyd's fall, Green, who he hardly knew, asked him if Revel had been arrested yet and mentioned a Māori man had visited Revel that same night. Green, in one of several additional statements to police, said he thought the man arguing with Boyd immediately before he went through the window was a big set Maori guy because of the guy's voice, not Revel. I'm not sure how you can tell someone's Maori by their voice, just saying. Revel's statements make no mention of anyone visiting him on the night of the incident. Police were unable to find anyone to corroborate any of the accounts, from Revel, Sillinger or Green. A detective's regret. In November 2008, Coroner Richard McElroy held an inquest into Sidney Boyd's death. The coroner asked Ruddock why police did not try to talk to Boyd in the hospital prior to his death. I was always of the opinion Sidney Boyd was going to get better, he said. I probably should have gone to see him in the ICU, but I didn't. I have to live with that. Ruddock told the inquest it was unlikely anyone would be charged over Boyd's death, which he did not believe was an accident. McElroy, the coroner, concluded that the evidence provided by Revel and Green was not reliable. He accepted with some hesitation that Salinger's version of events was true. The coroner said it was unlikely 
Revel retreated down the stairs after arguing with Boyd about the unplugged power cord. Cord, I should say. It was possible that a visitor to the complex known to Revel and Green was responsible for his ejection through the window. He also said, I find that Sidney Boyd was pushed, causing him to tumble down the stairs with such force that the reinforced glass was broken and he fell headfirst to the ground below. The question as to who pushed Sidney Boyd in this manner, resulting in injuries that led to his death, remains unsolved. Sidney Boyd's fatal fall never made big headlines. Um, as I said, I only found one article about this, which is absolutely atrocious. Almost nothing has been written about it for a decade. At the Rickerton Road complex where he lived, few residents know his name or anything about his death. Most of the people who knew him have either relocated or died. As memories of the incident have faded, so too have hopes of a resolution. Sillinger suffered a fatal heart attack in October 2018 at aged 56. His family has always believed he was not involved in Boyd's death and say the coroner's report exonerated him. Kyle Sillinger says he believed his sibling, who was horrified about the whole bloody thing, was the victim of an unfortunate set of circumstances. He says, I know that my brother wouldn't have done something like that. If anything, he was a peacemaker. Revel, who was addicted to drugs, suffered from hep C, was found unresponsive in his flat at the Rickerton Road complex on April 9 last year. He died the next day, age 56. The pathologist concluded the cause of his death was multi-organ failure, a coroner's finding says. Those who knew Revel, who grew up in Linwood, said he kept to himself in his latter years and rarely left his home. The second youngest of five siblings, he was largely estranged from his family, including his two daughters, both of whom were removed from his care when they were young. Unfortunately, Revel became addicted to painkillers after his leg was crushed in a car crash as a teenager. His older brother, who does not want to be identified, told stuff. His brother said he was never the same after that. That's what started his foray into the local underworld because he needed to source drugs. He lived in those seedy circles because he had to survive. Revel's brother, who'd heard rumours of the incident involving Boyd, struggles to rationalise him as a killer. Standing about 1.8 metres tall, he was slim and wore a leg brace after the crash. And although he lived an unfortunate life that had many bumps, he wasn't a thug said his brother. Exhaustive efforts by staff to contact Green, who until very recently lived in a housing New Zealand flat in Dunedin, were unsuccessful. The 66-year-old lives a transient lifestyle, has barely been in touch with his siblings since their mother died about a decade ago. Wayne Green is adamant his older brother, whose life was marred by drug use, wasn't involved in Boyd's death. He did more harm to himself than others, he said. He was actually a kind-hearted person. I believe him when he said he didn't see it happen because he was inside his flat. Canterbury District Crime Manager Detective Inspector Greg Merton says he's unable to talk about the case until the review he's commissioned has been completed. Carol, uh, Sid's sister, has a few physical memories of her brother apart from a handful of photographs in an old family album. She's angry the identity of his killer remains unknown. She says it's unfair someone can do something so bad and get away with it.
She has frustrated detectives didn't try to talk to her brother in hospital before his death. However, she's sceptical about whether he would have provided them with the information needed to solve the case. She believes her brother was confused during her interactions with him in hospital. When he pointed to room 43, she thinks he was indicating where he was going, rather than revealing who attacked him. She says she's formed the view that Revel pushed her brother through the window. She provides little foundation for that belief, other than he was the one with the vicious and fighting personality, and accepts it's likely she'll never have a definitive answer. The pensioner who lives in Wellington thinks about her brother often, particularly at family events and what he's missed out on. She doesn't like to look at a bold portrait of him smiling through a long grey wispy beard. It's a painful reminder of his final days at the Rickerton Road complex. Instead, she thinks back to the young, athletic teen whose life showed plenty of promise. She says he suffered a long and frightening death. It's sad that was how his life ended. Oh gosh, what an awful story. And you know what, I feel so bad that it got so little attention. I feel so bad that the police didn't do their damn jobs properly and go and talk to this guy, or try at least. Um, the poor family, I can see why they think that they're never going to get any justice or answers uh, for Sydney's death, um, especially with the two deaths. But if you hear anything, if you know anything, please get in touch with law enforcement. You know, you might be able to give the family some answers, something to settle them a bit and make them feel better about what happened. I will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. I'm TJ. See you later, guys. Okay, parachutes ready. Boy, the things I go through to get auto loan rates as low as 0.99% APR for 60 months on new vehicles with PenFed. You are aware that you don't have to be a military member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Leverage Redemption comes to IMDb-TV, and the con is on and more exciting than ever. The team reunites as they take justice into their own hands, not to mention adding a few new exciting recruits. For this crew, the stealing is mutual. There's no shortage of bad guys, and the con game has only gotten more complicated. Don't miss out on the action-packed heist and discover why crime is fun when you're the good guys. Leverage Redemption, now streaming free on IMDb-TV. IMDb-TV is available on Fire TV, Roku, or anywhere Prime Video is available.